Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business. My name's Patrick Gray. This week's show is brought to you by Resourcely, a company that will help you wrangle your cloud. Uh, Basically, they'll help you provision and manage your cloud infrastructure so you too can provision secure by default Terraform for AWS, GCP and Azure. Uh, Your tears will still flow, but they will be salty tears of joy and no longer salty tears of sorrow. Uh, Travis McPeak is Resourcely's co-founder and CEO, and he is this week's sponsor guest. Uh, We had a great chat about how security teams have gone from being roadblockers under the waterfall model to being ticket spammers under the DevOps model, and how there are ways you can actually make things uh, a little bit more harmonious, you know, by like maybe having a Terraform management tool instead of six million variations of that one simple module you wrote three years ago, which, uh, yeah, that's that's a pain point I'm sure a few people listening to this will be familiar with. Uh, Anyway, that is coming up later uh, after the news with Adam Boileau, which starts now. And Adam, uh, the government of Norway has had an incident. Apparently, 12 government agencies have been popped using a uh, ODE in Mobile Iron MDM, which apparently now is called Ivanti, which sounds to me like an Italian cookware brand, but there you go. <laughs> yes, they clearly haven't having a bit of a bad day there in Norway. This bug, I mean, having a bug in your mobile device management solution, like that's a bad day, full stop. Yes. Uh, in this case, uh, the bug is In this is case, like, it's a CVSS-10. It's a CVSS-10. And you don't see them very often. You yeah, know? I mean, you know, you see plenty of 9.8s, but a solid 10 out of 10, I mean, that's, uh, you know. Yeah, it's pretty funny when the, you know, the likelihood part of the metric is maxed out. I mean, given that they're hacking, you know, the government of a sovereign nation, so that probably counts for the high score. They're hard to weasel out of uh, for the vendor. But I think the bug is like straight up off bypass and then onwards into, you know, being able to just make API calls into it and, and reconfigure it, which given these things have to be on the internet pretty much yeah. anyway, and that's their point, is a really bad day. Uh, we haven't seen specifics yet. Uh, obviously, the vendor has patched, uh, but there's still quite a lot of these things uh, kicking around on the internet. So, yeah, bad day. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing with an MDM, right, is like if you didn't put it on the internet, it wouldn't be an MDM anymore. It would just be a DM. Yes. Because, you know, like <laughs> yes. the whole yes, point yes. is that you can manage, organ- you know, you can manage devices that are outside of the organization. So you're kind of just stuck with this one. We have seen, and look, you know, it's unusual for us just to talk about a bug, you know, leading the show, but, you know, it just falls into that category of, of things that you kind of have to put at the edge of your enterprise network that are going to get you owned. And we have seen quite a few bad bugs over the years in MDM solutions, but I feel like now it's just an, a, an even riskier time to have these sorts of bugs present in, you know, this type of gear because people are just going wild exploiting them. And it seems like it's <laughs> one group jumps on it and then everybody jumps on it and it's, it's, it's a bad time. Yeah, I mean, anything that has to be on the internet to kind of by necessity, things like MDM solutions, you know, firewalls, VPNs, voice over IP things that have to interact with the outside world, those kind of messaging systems, like they're all complicated, they're by design, privileged, make for juicy targets. So, you know, I think we're going to see, you know, we will absolutely see more of this kind of thing. There's been so much going on already and the conversations we've had in the past about, Every one of these things that meets those criteria of being on the edge, being privileged, um, being complicated is going to have a bad day as, you know, as we have seen. 
Yeah, yeah. Now let's talk about something that isn't enterprise cybersecurity. Let's talk about Tetra. Now, Tetra is essentially a bunch of, I guess, what would you call it? Uh, Radio standards, right? For quote unquote secure communications over things like walkie talkies. It's used for things like public safety agencies, you know, police, ambulance, fire, that sort of stuff. Limited military use as well. Um, although, you know, I, I, I can't imagine that too many militaries are relying on Tetra radios for like combat operations and whatever, because just looking into it a little bit, like not exactly hard to see on a spectrometer, right? <laughs> uh, for, for example, and yeah, probably just not, not, not the sort of thing they're going to be using. Um, but apparently it's also quite widely used for machine-to-machine communications in critical infrastructure applications. And a group of researchers has found that the lowest tier of encryption in Tetra, known as uh, TEA1, uh, it's supposed to have like an 80-bit key length, but the algorithm like actually truncates that key down to like 32 bits, which makes it trivially sort of crackable. And now everyone's saying, intentional backdoor. Now, this whole thing is a lot of fun, right? Like it's a, it's a very fun story. And Kim Zetta gets a special mention this week for talking to someone from the standards body that is responsible for Tetra. Uh, this, guy's, this guy's name is Brian uh, Murgatroyd. Uh, but there's this great Q&A that she's published with him where he's like, well, yeah, it's export restricted. So of course the key is truncated and, you know, just sort of like <laughs> saying the quiet part out loud and also sort of downplaying it a little bit, but in a way that seems quite reasonable. Like he points out that, you know, this thing's 25 years old and has had a reasonable track record. And, you know, I look, as, and we'll get to the get to the reasons why I don't think this is a sky is falling moment in a bit. But first, let's get your thoughts on this, Adam. And so I think this is a really interesting case study on, you know, what it looks like when you have standards that are engineered by organizations that, you know, want to manage whether or not people have access to it. Like it's a, we think of all of the examples that, uh, you know, cypherpunks have given us over the years of, oh my God, the slippery slope or, oh my God, um, you know, the NSA are in our key mat or, or whatever else. And this is actually, it's just a really interesting worked example of, you know, export controlled cryptography is there so that the key is long enough that other people can't crack it, but small enough that you can. Um, and it's also a great case study in non-public ciphers. So one of the criticisms here is that you know, these are ciphers that have been in use for, as you said, 25 years in, you know, and they're proprietary designs without peer review. And in this case, a group of academics uh, reverse engineered some Motorola radios that implemented it, pulled out the you know, the code, the software, and then went through and, and looked for flaws. And they found some flaws in the crypto, but also in other kind of more workaday aspects of running, um, you know, a, a trunked radio network, being able to introduce new uh, access points and so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, that feels like a great justification for not having secret ciphers and not having you know closed designs but on the other hand it's been 25 years well that's the that's the thing it's like the last point that this guy makes in the q and a hang on i'm scrolling uh kim Zetta says but no one really knew how secure it was so it has that reputation through obscurity not verifiability and this guy says well uh, obscurity is also a way of maintaining security. And, you know, that is not the popular thing to say no. uh, in, in security circles, but dude also has a point. <laughs> he does. <laughs> and that's why it's such a it's such a wonderful story because, like, in a way, he's pretty unapologetic about it. Like, they handed off the design. They got cryptographers to design it. They handed it off to the British security services. They came back with some changes. You know, one of them was the key restriction for 
you know, the export version of it. There were some other weird changes to some of the S boxes uh, that no one's really quite sure about. And one of the research cryptographers says, like, this looks weird, but I don't really see a way to way to use it. But uh, who knows? Who um, knows why cryptographers do the things they do, Adam? They do, <laughs> Moral the of the story. They do. <laughs> yes. Um, but as you say, like this is you know mostly in use in publics, you know, public safety sector, some control systems as a radio system, and uh, you know for communications for for devices. And you know there are certainly a bunch of interesting attack avenues, and I'm sure there's areas in the world where this stuff is used where those export restrictions on strong crypto have been legitimately useful being able to you know passively listen into emergency services comms you know in russia for example yeah probably i mean but, quite useful but here's the thing right like when public safety agencies have switched to using encrypted radios that's actually been controversial uh, in the past because the media uses those radios yes. to find out what the police are up to. And this is generally considered to be a good thing. I mean, obviously, there's going to be a lot of ambulance chasing and that sort of stuff as well. Um, but whether these things should be completely secure or not is actually, you know, a, a topic of debate. And in the case of industrial control systems, okay, sure, it's not great being able to decrypt all of that traffic. I mean, this person makes the point too that of that particular technique that allows for decryption. It doesn't allow you to insert messages onto the network, but there are other techniques that these researchers have found where you could set up a fake base station and overpower the real one. And it looks, look, it looks a bit complicated when you and I both know, Adam, and more so you than me, because I know you've done this sort of work before, these industrial control system networks over wide areas are not physically secure. No, no, they're are, not. You know, are you gonna are you gonna mess around with spinning up custom tetra tetra base stations, or are you gonna get some bolt cutters, cut the padlock off the box, and plug into the thing? Uh, it, yes, yeah, there is there is very much a degree of practical attacks, and especially in fielded equipment, you know, it's way out in the middle of nowhere, and you know, there is some value to not having to go hike out into the back blocks of Australia to bust into mining equipment, right? It's nice for the testers or the attackers to be able to, you know, sit in the office and do it remotely via radio uh, rather than yeah. having to get the spiders out of the cabinet first or the snakes or whatever else. Um, but yes, these, you know, it's a great example of what, you know, radio systems designed 25 years looked like. And honestly, it feels like a standard that's done pretty well despite these you know, compromises yeah. and trade-offs that they've, they've had to make. Um, they do make the point, I think, or the guy makes the point in the conversation with Kim that, you know, there are mechanisms to do over-the-top crypto, et cetera. You're not 100% reliant on Tetra's things. And in the case of control systems that are running over that, they may reasonably expect people to run their own overlay networks yeah, over throw the top some, of it. throw some AES on top of that and, you know, Robert's your mother's brother. Yeah, exactly. So... Um, I don't know these systems are just super interesting, though. I mean, I remember when because in New Zealand we use the P twenty five standard, the one that's more common in the United States. And I remember when they turned that on, and my radio scanner for the local police stopped working. I was quite sad. But you know, as you say, there's you know plenty of interesting reasons for listening to this stuff. Um, but you know, it only has to work so far as to make it not practical to go to the local radio store and buy an off the shelf radio and listen to the police, right? And that yeah. you know, all of these options do provide that capability. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand that, you know, I understand that there's a temptation to write breathless stories about how this yes. is some huge critical infrastructure vulnerability, but I guess, 
you know, I guess I just wanted to push back on that a little bit, right? And to say, well, you know, you can run something over the top, uh, which is going to give you more confidentiality, right? And a little bit more security. And also, you know, if you're really just relying on the security of your radio network when you don't have a physically secure piece of infrastructure, like it, it, it doesn't change much, I guess, is what I'm saying. And I have seen, you know, people on social media and stuff getting a little bit breathless about this one. That's all. I mean, it's, it's terrific research. And I think yes. it, they've made points well about uh, closed standards, being able to sit there being insecure for a long time, but let's just not get carried away with this being a disaster, I think. Yeah, I mean, one of the questions Kim was asking was, you know, about whether the other countries that were buying export-controlled versions of, of this stuff to operate, you know, whether they should have been better informed about the, you know, 80-bit versus 32-bit key material, for example. And you can't help but feel like, well, if you're buying your radios from the European Union and you know, you're on the list that can't buy the full strength one, then that kind of tells you what you need to know, even if you don't know the specifics. Now, let's move on. Oh, now, of course, let's talk about the dust up between Wiz and Microsoft. Um, yes. Of course, last week we spoke about this um, intrusion into a bunch of, uh, you know, Outlook Online accounts. Uh, Chinese APT crew obtained, mysteriously obtained, or as Microsoft put it, acquired a very powerful key which they used to forge access tokens into people's mailboxes. Wiz did a bunch of really interesting research actually saying, well, that's not all you can do uh, if you have a key like that. And you know, you can mint access tokens for all of these other services as well. So great research, but they went a little bit overboard on the PR uh, by saying, oh my God, this is so much bigger and deeper than we knew and sort of heavily implying with their commentary around it that these attackers did mint uh, yes. these types of access tokens and, and do this sort of stuff. And that has predictably uh, elicited a response from Microsoft along the lines of this is not based in truth, blah, 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 blah. So, you know, this is just a case, I guess, of two companies behaving quite badly uh, in, in that Wiz has done great research and then sort of, you know, overdone it in the storytelling part. And then Microsoft is just, you know, weasel mode, engage. Right? <laughs> like this is, this is horseshit, right? Um, and I mean, that's a fair summary of what's happened here, isn't it? Yeah, I, th I think it is. And I mean, I, I imagine the people at Wiz who did the technical research probably wrote it up sensibly and then called PR got a hold yeah, of it. Yeah, marketing and, and got a hold of it and that was went, that. Went a little big. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm, I have a lot of sympathy for Wiz in this because, you know, we don't get to see the insides of cloud infrastructure. We are reduced to inferring the property, the security properties of the of these systems. And you well, know, you know why Wiz Wiz knows all about it because they all used to work at Microsoft, man. <laughs> yes, and and to be honest, like we kind of need that, right? Because we don't get to see the insides of these environments, we do need people to go have a rummage around, and you know, people who work there are well equipped to do that. Um, but yeah, that kind of line between is possible and actually got used for badness is a thing we've seen a bunch of security firms you know kind of blur the line on for publicity reasons because they're not the same thing right just because you can doesn't mean a chinese apt did it yet um and you know i, I you know i have a lot of sympathy for wiz in this uh, and microsoft yeah. doth protest too much i feel yes they doth <laughs> um, now, look, staying on the on the same topic, uh, Microsoft is going to give you free logs now. They've <laughs> added 31 categories of logs to their lower end, you know, uh, cloud computing tiers. 
and uh, they've extended the default, the standard tier logging, uh, the default retention has now gone from 90 to 180 days. This has been after years of pressure. I mean, we've been banging this drum pretty loudly for years, right? Then CISA picked it up and kind of ran with it. Um, So there's been a lot of us out there saying, this is ridiculous. And finally, and you know, it was a big thing after SolarWinds where the true extent of what happened during that campaign wasn't really clear because of this logging issue. And it really was the case that the next time it happened, they were going to get hammered for it. And that's what's happened in this case. They've been hammered and they finally capitulated and uh, hooray. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is is great progress, even if not for the, you know, the greatest reasons. One of the things that came out of this kind of like Chinese APT intrusion was that the US government agency that spotted the keys being used to sign weird authentication was because they had it that extended logging and everybody else who didn't was left with not enough information to determine what happened, let alone spot it in the first place. So, you know, Microsoft's opportunity to argue that it had sufficient logging, you know, kind of evaporated with that. Uh, you know, if yeah. they had showed up and said, hey, we got broken into, the fact that it took a customer to do it and a US government customer and even what it was the what State Department or something, like it shouldn't get to that point before something changes. And I'm glad that, you know, we are now seeing Microsoft be a little bit more sensible about this. But I mean, two words that shouldn't go together are premium logs. Yes, agreed <laughs> you know, completely. Like, yeah. What I'm the like, f- is that? Yeah, upselling people on logging is not a thing that, uh, you know, your salespeople should be doing. And if you're doing that, then you're going to end up like this, you know, getting wrecked and then having to walk it back quite publicly like Microsoft are. Mm. Now, last week we spoke about the jump cloud breach and I mentioned that Catalan Kimpanu had a source who was saying it was North Korea, uh, a single source that he wasn't sure. By the time his newsletter went out, he'd picked up another source, he'd nailed it down, got it out there. Uh, that has actually turned out to be quite right. Reuters has uh, confirmed it. I think even Mandiant has, has come out and said so as well. And uh, very nice of the Reuters staff to link back to uh, our Catalan story on this. So that was that was. That was nice. Big, big Catalan W on that one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the fact that it's North Koreans going after, you know, JumpCloud as a supply chain vector into crypto things, also a good reminder for everybody who's involved in hosting or operating or running crypto infrastructure uh, that the DPRK are, you know, going to come for you uh, and help themselves uh, to your customers. So, yeah. Yeah. And Zach Whittaker for TechCrunch has a nice report up. Uh, I think speaking to some more Mandiant people and um, yeah, I mean, the North Koreans who did this just made a couple of mistakes that made the attribution pretty easy. <laughs> yeah, it looks like they uh, uh, had some issues with uh, one of their VPN components and they ended up just like straight up logging in from Pyongyang. So <laughs> yeah. that's a little bit orcs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. VPN not working, uh, just turn it off. I mean, you know, you got to ask though. It was always going to eventually get attributed to them. So why well, not? Yeah. And you like know? maybe they're at the point where it doesn't matter anymore. They can just do it. Well, from what are you going to do? You know? Extradite them? Like yeah, exactly. Just, right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a weird. You know, it's such a weird thing, right? This whole North Korea stuff because they're actually out there using really innovative techniques. You yeah. know, doing supply chain infiltration and whatnot. Like we've got another one here. Uh, this one's from John Gregg uh, over at the Record, but. Um, you know, they're doing some some pretty interesting stuff on the old GitHub there too, you know, and this is partially social engineering and whatever, but it just shows that they've got a pretty well-rounded capability. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that, that North Korean hackers show is that, you know, given 
evolutionary pressure, right? You're going to get your family shot by anti-aircraft cannons if you don't hack this stuff. You end up with very, very workable, productive, useful techniques, right? I mean, That's they- bleak, man. But anyway, <laughs> um, I mean, you could look at it the other way and say, you know, when you've got a place that's indoctrinated as this and there's so many true believers, you could get at that. But sure, let's go with, you know, dismemberment by air, anti-air cannons. Thanks, mate. That's great. Bad Thanks for putting now. that in my head. <laughs> Um, but yeah, something wrong with you, man. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> um, yeah, like you know, they are very much an outcomes based. You know, they reward success and they use what works. You know, and mm. that kind of blend of you know, we don't care about supply chain. We're not constrained in the way that anyone else is. You Norms. Know, what are they? Yeah, right? exactly. Right. Yeah. That that willingness to just willingness to just do what it takes to get the job done. I mean, I don't want to hand it to them, but... Yeah. But I mean, that's the thing. You imagine if they were actually out to create quote-unquote real problems, right? And like, I think, you know, it seems like they're going after banks less because banks have... I mean, you know, give SWIFT some credit here, right? Because North Koreans were going after SWIFT terminals and whatever. SWIFT actually put in some work. Banks actually put in some work to sort of lock that stuff down. And the North Koreans, as best I can tell, they don't go after that stuff anymore because it's just gotten too hard. So now they're all in on cryptocurrency. And I think a lot of people just think, you know, just observe this and it's like, it's fun. It's like watching sports, right? Because it's <laughs> cryptocurrency and it it's sort of disconnected from real, quote unquote, real enterprise, real business, real government, right? I mean, they're yeah. still doing the espionage stuff uh, uh, as well, but like they're so active in this cryptocurrency stuff and it just doesn't feel, you know, can you imagine if they just turned their attention to doing destructive attacks using some of this same tradecraft? Yes, like, we'd be yeah, really absolutely. worried. And we get to watch all of this cool stuff and not really stress about it, which <laughs> I find a really strange situation. But look, walk us through this uh, GitHub stuff, like what they're doing there. So uh, their campaign on GitHub is a somewhat of an extension, it feels like, of the work they've done, you know, putting out fake job ads to infosec people and trying to lure in, uh, you know, either developers or security researchers you know, to collaborate on GitHub somehow uh, and then push out some code that if it ends up being used inside an organization, then is going to give North Koreans access, which is, you know, a smart combo of supply chain, social engineering uh, and, you know, attacks on, um, well, like, like really creative backdoors in the in the supply chains of you know NPM libraries or Perl modules or whatever. Well, else. it's like so- social engineering, but like there's this element of community infiltration to it, yes. which just makes it really interesting. Yeah, it, it is. It is really interesting. And going after people, you know, kind of in the social circles of you know people who are building stuff at, at crypto companies, so as to write, you know, get into their software supply. It's just it's it's smart and it's well done. And there's also you know nerds. Um, who, who you know, think of themselves as smart? Don't nec- like they look down on people who fall for social engineering, like normal phishing style things. Or they think they're not gonna get convinced by targeted attacks. And yet, it's I know it's just very slick, and you know, I I appreciate it in a way that I feel bad <laughs> doing so. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. <laughs> and and AJ Vicens over at CyberScoop, he did a really fun write up actually. And this is the sort of story I normally hate. Uh, it's normally the sort of story that's kind of feels a bit like filler. But the headline is latest North Korean hack targeting cryptocurrency shows troubling evolution, experts say. And you think, groan. And then you read it and you're like, actually, yeah. And I mean, this that this piece kind of inspired my rant there about like, no, they are legit doing yes. some pretty innovative stuff. And I mean, I don't find it troubling because they're stealing made up internet money. Yes. And, you know, if they want to steal apes, like go right ahead, have at it. But... You know, the I feel I guess the point that this piece makes is that the tradecraft in itself is alarming. 
Yes, yeah, yeah, they have definitely learned a lot. I mean, it wasn't that many years back that you'd look at North Korean attackers and laugh, right? You'd be like, ha, ha, yeah. ha. You know, that's Although Dmitry, Dmitry Alperovich and I have had big arguments about that because he says they've always been innovators and it's just right. people have just started paying attention lately. Yeah, um, that's also entirely I, possible, yeah. Well, but then my counterpoint is like it's a matter of scale, isn't it, right? Like they might have been innovative, but they, they weren't operating at this same level. You know, yes. So I think we're both right. <laughs> but that's like just I said, what I think. I mean, they're, they're certainly onto a winner targeting the cryptocurrency world because, as you say, to a lot of us, it feels kind of like a victimless crime stealing someone's internet <laughs> apes. But it also I makes feel real... I so bad making that joke, but yeah. If, if, but it makes real money to fund a real nuclear weapons program. And like, so it's, you know, it's not. But as you say, compared to going after the Bank of Bangladesh's SWIFT terminals... Yeah. Right, it, it, it feels, it feels less victimless compared to stealing compared hundreds to of millions of dollars from a poor country. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <sighs> Lol. <laughs> That's pretty much Basically. it in summary. You know, it's a. I mean, I, I do wonder how, like, looking back at this in years in the future, how much of a break North Korea has put on the rise of cryptocurrency stupidity, and maybe like their crime will have saved us from mm. crypto becoming too big and too powerful and too big to fail. Well, that's and a interesting, certainly an interesting glass half full take there. Yeah, there you go. See, I can do it. I can do glass half full. Yeah. But I mean, <laughs> you know, you're saying this disaster is is a positive, which is a really interesting twist on glass half full, I guess. <laughs> that's uh, that's quite unique. Um, now, look, this next one, man, like I, I uh, we had a similar story. It was in our newsletter. Catalan wrote it up. I think I actually cut this one from the Risky Business News podcast script because... Okay, so Google has spun up some sort of red team to look at, you know, the security of AI models. Okay, this to me seems like a bit of a PR story. Um, so when it found its way into the Risky Business News podcast script, uh, I cut it. By the way, if you are not subscribed to the Risky Business News RSS feed to get those podcasts three times a week, there's a bulletin read by an ex-ABC News presenter. Uh, it's It's prepared by Catalan. It's edited by you and me, Adam. goes out three times a week and you're going to hear a lot of news in that news bulletin that you will not hear on this show, okay? Uh, it, it's definitely worth subscribing to. Uh, but anyway, so I, I cut it from there because I'm like, okay, yay, Google has got, you know, red teamers to, to look at LLMs, you know, whoop-de-doo. And then, my God, like I couldn't get away from that story in the mainstream media over the, the, the next couple of days because, you know, it might have been a, a PR thing, but it just landed everywhere there's so much of this public fear about um, AI and now you know we've got this story here from Lindsay Wilkinson uh, over at Cybersecurity Dive looking at how the White House has secured safety commitments from seven AI companies. Yeah I mean I read that headline and I was also a bit kind of eh uh, you know that's not very exciting but you know like it or not AI stuff is important and the lev the lack of transparency in it is certainly a thing that's you know that that's a concern and so in this case you know we're talking about the white house securing commitments from amazon google meta microsoft etc cetera, etc cetera, uh, to do a bunch of things to improve the robustness of uh, you know the controls around ai systems and more transparency about things that go wrong with them and you know, I, I don't know how much is PR and how much is real, but like it or not, we're stuck with, uh, you know, with AI systems getting better and crazier and more involved well, in our stuff. Yeah, so I, I think, okay, so the thing that I find interesting about this is that regulators are jumping on it early. 
So you think back to when Facebook was a new thing and then all of a sudden, you know, we went from no one having a Facebook account to basically everyone having a Facebook account. And there was no White House investigation to look into, you know, what could be the the problems that this thing's going to create for society? How should we think about regulating this sort of thing? So the reason I find this one interesting is that it's a new technology that does have massive implications for things like economic productivity, labor, privacy, you know, there's security concerns as well, and governments are all over it. Now, is that for the smart reason in that they've learned that just allowing these huge technology phenomenon to, to, to go, you know, completely unchecked is a bad idea, or are they doing it for the stupid reason that they think it's going to be like, you know, the Terminator is going to come and get us, right? <laughs> so that's what, I, that's what I can't decide is if this is happening for the smart reason or the stupid reason. But it yeah. is interesting. We're seeing, we're seeing announcements from companies like Google saying, look, we've got a red team and we're going to be looking at model safety and stuff. And I think that is in large part due to, uh, you know, the fact that governments are paying attention and are threatening them with the regulation stick. Yeah, it's a very good point you raise. Like that, we are seeing this discussion so early in a life, you know, in the life cycle of a of a new technology, as say compared to social media or or whatever else. When you think about the disruption from video streaming, you know, online video streaming to movie industries and whatever else, right? I mean, there's just been a, you know, it's weird for it to be happening this early. Mm. Um, and well, and it's always been like the the, the regulatory, like the government. Th- way of thinking about internet-based technologies has been, no, no, don't apply regulation because you'll stifle innovation. Just let it all happen. Worry about it later. And, you know, they're not doing that with this stuff at all. Yeah, and whether it's the the good reason or the dumb reason, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) that's a hard one. (laughs) Well, maybe it's both. Maybe I think it's probably people using the dumb, smart people using the dumb reason to get it done. I mean, that's also entirely possible because you know there is so much pop culture around AI's gone rogue and smart robots yeah. and killer robots and you know <laughs> I think you know also the idea of of non-human intelligence does strike us you know right in some you know primitive heart of our you know of being proud about the fact we came from organic evolution instead of being designed so like yeah you know, it's just a very personal thing for humans uh, to feel like a, a human like a machine can you know make up. Jay-Z lyrics, just like Jay-Z. Like, that's a... Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's to me, that just seems like a parlor trick. Anyway, everyone's heard my thoughts on these LLMs, yeah. which, you know, I guess, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit biased on this because, you know, I've been writing for a long time professionally yes. and I just, I think it writes terribly and it gets facts wrong. And I'm like, you know, it can generate stuff that sounds like, someone who's not very good at writing wrote it. And, and you know, like, oh, my God, we're all going to die isn't what I get from that, you know? Yeah, yeah, yes. I mean, that's it. We do use AI tools in the in the production flow for risky business these days. And yeah, but they're not, not language-based no. tools, right? So just before anyone thinks that, um, <laughs> we certainly don't use any LLMs for, to do any writing, but we do use a ML-based tool to enhance bad audio when we have to deal with it. Uh, we don't even use that in this segment because, you know, Keep the machines away from it. (laughs) (laughs) But it's funny hearing that hallucinate things. You know, you gave us an example at one point of like a a dog barking in the background being turned into... It sounded like the guy was barking, yeah. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And there was a great one where I interviewed HD Moore and he was typing on his... his, Like while I was asking him questions and stuff, he was typing on his uh, keyboard and the model actually hallucinated with every keystroke um, syllables. (laughs) 
but in HD's voice, which was quite, <laughs> you know, it sounded like he was speaking in tongues. It was quite funny. <laughs> uh, what else have we got? Here? Okay, so now we've got people raising a legitimate concern in the absolute dumbest way possible. <laughs> so, how unusual for our industry. <laughs> oh my God. So, we've got a headline here from CyberScoop, which is Renewable Technologies at Risk to the US Electric Grid, experts warn. And look, in it, there are people raising some uh, very valid points about how a lot of these solar inverters. And we did see uh, in in the last over the last month there was one of the companies in China, SunGrow, was it? Ah, anyway, a company that makes uh, solar panel uh, controllers, right? They had some horror show bugs in that in the in the in the box that controls the panels, and that's really not what you want, okay? Because no. that stuff can make fires and make things go bang. Uh, so that's bad. And of course, a lot of this technology for controlling rooftop solar at residentials, like I have, uh, and also solar farms, a lot of this stuff is connected technology and it's made by Chinese companies. And people are making the point that like, look, there's so much solar now in these developed economies. You know, maybe having Chinese technology running these things is something we need to think about. You know, whether that's going to be banning the import of certain technologies or finding out ways to mitigate the risks that come with them, you know, this is something that deserves to be raised as an issue. So first of all, let I just want to get your thoughts on that, Adam. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, much like the conversation around 5G mobile networking and communications, building your national infrastructure for, you know, all of the things in society on top of a technology stack that you don't necessarily control or trust or have concerns about the origin of, that's a thing that you're going to regret. Um, so in that respect, you know, especially, you know, you look at the amount of renewable energy we're aiming towards and how much of that, you know, comes from, from China and you know we're pretty price sensitive as well about these things um, you know it's it's certainly worth having a conversation about in the same way that we did around mobile networks and other bits of important infrastructure um, but you know we're still quite a long way from you can turn off the power grid in America from yes Beijing. yes that is right now look a few days after that cyberscoop story ran we get a release from an Australian senator who is the Shadow Minister for Cybersecurity. And uh, you know, I'll give you the title of the release. Labor's rush to renewables leaves Australia vulnerable to catastrophic cyber attack. <laughs> now, this is James Patterson. Yeah, you know, he's, he's basically, uh, if, if the Conservatives were to win the next election, he would have Claire O'Neill's job. Uh, now, I've got an interview with Claire O'Neill, our Home Affairs and Cyber Minister. Uh, that is going out uh, tomorrow afternoon. Uh, I spoke to her on Friday, her and Kieran Martin, the founding director of the UK's NCSC. Uh, that is a terrific interview. Uh, you know, she's a tremendously talented uh, woman who got sort of parachuted into the into the cyber uh, uh, portfolio uh, at, you know, next to no notice and has done a terrific job. And then you contrast that with this, right, where the guy <laughs> is saying, you know, with this statement, where the guy is saying, you know, that we're vulnerable to a catastrophic cyber attack. Well, I mean, are we? Are we? Uh, I mean, it's, I agree that it's worth thinking about. Yes. Right? But, and also the rush to renewables, like taking a poke at renewables in it. Like he, he wrote for the Institute of Public Affairs here in Australia, was editing one of its publications or whatever. It's a very conservative think tank that just shits out like the stupidest stuff you can imagine. And <laughs> you read this and it is just brainworm shit. And I think, James, you probably listened to this show. One thing people in security don't like, and it doesn't matter what political stripe you are, 
don't turn this into partisan shit. Just don't do it. Everyone will hate you. Yes, absolutely. No one likes a FUD merchant and even worse when it's, you know, kind of politically integrated. Yeah, no. So this is just absolutely like his copy-paste release, but with added shade at renewables and, you know, and the anyway. Sorry, I mean, I've been ranting now, but you, did, when you read this, did you also groan and roll your eyes? Yeah, and I don't even know the guy and the Australian politics are not my, you know, my first love. I, uh, yeah, I was just like, what the what the hell sort of trash is this? And just like, shut up. But the fact yeah. that he could be the next cyber minister, that's also problematic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, the former uh, advisor to Malcolm Turnbull, you know, Malcolm Turnbull, Australian Conservative Prime Minister, he had Alastair McGibbon, uh, who you now work with at CyberCX. Yes. Alastair McGibbon did a tremendous job. He was not a government minister, he was, you know, but he worked for the Prime Minister, uh, did a tremendous job. You know, the Conservatives here have done good work in cyber. They did some good stuff. They were pretty transparent. They had a good outlook. There was good advice going around. This is a, this is a misstep. That's all, that's all I'm getting at, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, Al Mack and I certainly don't agree on our politics, but, you know, he's a solid cat and he understands uh, how computers work and how they get wrecked. Because this isn't a partisan thing. And that's really what I'm getting at. You know, it doesn't matter what your politics are. Anyway, that's enough of me just ranting and raving. Uh, Let's talk about Zenbleed. Tavis Ormandy, uh, back with another hit. Oh, yeah, this is, so, this is such good research, as you would expect from Tavis uh, out of Google. So uh, Tavis has been fuzzing AMD CPUs uh, to try and find weird microarchitectural bugs and things, given you know the long history of finding that kind of bug over the last few years. Uh, and they came up with a rig that would run you know, fuzzed instructions on a real CPU in parallel with a virtualized CPU that has the ideal behavior and then compare the results to try and find things that were strange. And he found a doozy. Uh, so this is, uh, he's called it Zenblade. It's a, a attack where you can leak data from other parts of the CPU uh, across virtual machine boundaries, across process boundaries. Uh, we haven't yet seen an implementation that does it in a web browser, but you know, I'm sure that's what Taris is spending his, uh, his weekend doing. Um, that's what he's so, thinking about in the shower. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, and it involves a flaw in how, uh, in the case of speculative execution gone wrong, AMD rolls back a certain, like, clearing some particular uh, register state such that it doesn't actually clear it and you can leak material out. And this is a relatively high bandwidth channel. It's not a... Uh, timing-based thing like we've seen other ones. Like this is a, you know, you can get 30k byte a second off the CPU out of its registers and just kind of watch stuff going on. And the relevant instructions that he found are used in things like uh, hardware accelerated string copy or mem copy or like a bunch of operations that are very, very commonly used. And the the GNU glibc compiler generates code that's kind of, you know, vulnerable to this uh, in normal operations. So widespread... Uh, applies to a whole bunch of AMD processes from desktop to data center uh, and there's exploit code out there. So if you were a AMD running, you know, cloud provider at the moment, you, you're you going to want to start patching. Uh, AMD has yeah. released some microcode patches for this, but you're going to need cooperation from your operating system and your BIOS and whatever else to apply them. So it's fiddly to fix, yeah. very powerful quite workable and yeah it's a it's it's cool cool bug cool research 
Yeah. So I think this is most relevant to those cloud providers who might be offering, you know, hypervisor-based access to shared hardware. Yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. Or, um, you know, anyone who's got, uh, who relies on a virtualization boundary, you know, for real security things. I mean, the Which, idea. Yeah, of, what a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, like, usually when we see. Uh, when we've seen bugs like this, often there tends to be an equivalent thing on the other platform because, you know, hardware engineers tend towards similar solutions to similar problems. And they're both implementing the same yeah. x86 instructions. They make sets, similar mistakes, right? And they make similar mistakes. And yeah. it also does vary a bit between operating systems, how vulnerable they are. So, for example, on uh, OpenBSD, their compiler is kind of less optimized, so it doesn't generate very high speeds, you know, string copy or whatever else. Uh, that uses this particular hardware, you know, these very long registers to do hardware acceleration, et cetera. So, you know, your the applicability of the bug does vary a bit based on compiler and operating system dependencies. But overall, like, there is a lot of glibc out there. I don't know what it looks like on Windows. It's pretty serious bugs, um, nevertheless. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, we don't really have a great deal of time to talk about this one, but Matt Burgess has a write-up for Wired about how satellites have typical sort of IoT-style security bugs in them. I mean, no real surprises there, are there, Adam? No, but I guess the, the, the thing that's important about this particular set of research, which is out of some German universities, was they actually did it. Uh, they found some satellites on orbit that are available for people to test with, and they remote code exact at least one of them, which is like an Estonian research uh, one, which in their defense had a mechanism on its command and control channel where you could just like read and write arbitrary memory unauthed if you yeah. could speak the relevant protocol, which is about somewhat standardized. So, you know. So it's like respect, sort of having a debugger on a, on a port, right? It's like kind of like having a debugger. Yeah. But they did also find some like legit memory corruption and stuff in other satellite uh, bits of software and things. So they looked at three different sets of satellites um, and found, you know, bugs in all of them. So just nice to see practical research instead of theoretical stuff. Meanwhile, Gavin Wilde from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and Gavin's uh, uh, appeared as an as a interviewee in Seriously Risky Business in the newsletter before, uh, he has published some research looking at Russia's problems running their so-called SORM uh, surveillance system. So obviously a lot of this stuff is run with like Nokia and Ericsson kit and they're just it's just atrophying. It's not working as well. The Chinese stuff isn't as good. And um, yeah, Russia apparently is having a bit of trouble maintaining its its you know surveillance dragnet on its telco system. Yeah, I imagine that both, you know, Finland and uh, and Sweden as you know Nokia and Ericsson respectively probably don't feel so great about supporting Russian systems at the moment. Uh, and as you say, the bit rot is starting to set in. They're having capacity issues. They're having challenges. Um, now they were talking about deploying a 5G mobile network, for example. Getting the relevant gear is becoming difficult for them. And so, you know, having a, a functional national surveillance network, you know, even when you can't build the regular network first before you can surveil it, yeah, it's difficult, difficult times for them. Yeah, uh, Apple has issued another patch for covering the ODA used um, in that campaign targeting Russian iPhones, which uh, <laughs> the FSB attributed to the NSA and said that Apple was complicit and Apple denied it and whatever. So yeah, Apple's still patching um, triangulation-related bugs, so that's fun. Um, now, also, I just want to draw attention to the lead paragraph in this BBC story, 
The headline is Apple slams UK surveillance bill proposals. The headline says, uh, sorry, the lead says, Apple says it will remove services such as FaceTime and iMessage from the UK rather than weaken security if new proposals are made law and acted upon. Now, this is being repeated everywhere by everyone saying if the UK passes the Investigatory Powers Act changes, right, that Apple's going to shut down these services. That's not what they're saying. They're saying if they're asked to do something stupid once those powers come in, they will pull their service rather than comply. This is distinct from the online safety bill, which is the one about client-side scanning for CSAM, but it's the same. Signal has said the same thing in that context, which is not we're leaving if the law passes, but we are leaving if the law passes and then the government asks us to do something stupid. This is just a... This is an important distinction yes. that a lot of people covering this have have been missing. So I just wanted to get that out there. Uh, what else have we got here? Yes, the uh, Fourth Amendment is not for sale act has passed the House Judiciary Committee. This is the act that would stop law enforcement agencies in the United States from buying data from data brokers, basically. Yes, they'd need some kind of warrant and there would be a process around acquiring data commercially that they would have needed a warrant for if they weren't getting it commercially. And finally, Adam, uh, some really sad news, actually. Kevin Mitnick has uh, passed away. I'm sure, you know, everyone listening to this would have would have seen that by now because it was, um, you know, the reaction was was huge. He died at 59 uh, from pancreatic cancer. And, you know, there was a time when Kevin and I were in pretty regular contact. I've hung out with him a bunch. Uh, the last time I spent good, you know, quality time with him was he found out I was going to be in Vegas by myself uh, the Monday after DEFCON. Uh, and so he said, hey, you know, I'll, I'll come and pick you up and I'll take you out to dinner and just keep me company. And he did. And look, Kevin's a really, misun- you know, was a really misunderstood person. Um, he was a lot of fun, a lot of fun, uh, very, very smart and quite a nice bloke, uh, to be honest. But there's this line from his obituary, which I loved, which said, uh, to know Kevin was to be enthralled, exasperated, amazed, amused, irritated and utterly charmed in equal measure. And, uh, you know, I've got Kevin Mitnick stories for miles. Uh, You know, I had him track down Christopher Boyce, the Falcon, from the Falcon and the Snowman fame. When he got out of prison, Kevin found him. And he told me that, he, you know, he was going to give me his details once he found him. And he did this for me. And then he, he says he got excited and rang him up. And then the guy just shut him down and said, no, I don't want to talk to you. Eventually, I interviewed him years <laughs> later because he, he had a book coming out. But I was, you know, I was never sure that that was true if he actually did find him and did talk to him. I had no way of verifying that. And Kevin was a prankster, right? And, and you know, you, you could never quite be sure with him when he would say something. I'll give, you, I'll give you another example. About nine years ago, it was reported that Kevin spun up a thing called the Mitnick Vulnerability Exchange and he was selling O'Day and stuff. And it was this huge controversy. He told me, and I was sworn to secrecy on this because he didn't. He wanted to be able to do this sort of thing again, and that doesn't matter now because he's gone. He told me the entire thing was an elaborate troll. <laughs> that is a beautiful. Thing. And I'm like, why would you? Why would you do that? And he's like, because I think it's really funny to trick journalists, you know. And now, is that true? I I also don't know. But I had some great times with Kevin. I've known it. You know, I I've known I'd known him something like 20 years you know and we weren't like BFFs or anything but we've hung out in Byron man we've hung out in the states and I did meet his wife who is pregnant with their first child I met her uh just a couple times in in Vegas just bumped into him and 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 she was with him and she seems like a really lovely person and my thought thoughts go out to her obviously but um yeah look a really really misunderstood guy who was you know (sighs) 
it's hard to it's hard to it's hard to describe it, but like in many ways he didn't care about how he was perceived, and in other ways he really did. But the guy that you would get when you took him away from a conference, took him away from the security scene and actually hung out with him, very genuine, very warm, someone who was actually very easy to connect with and you would have real talk with the guy, just a, just a, just a great guy, you know. And as I say, like he, he turned into a bit of a hate figure uh, among some in the, in the industry, but they didn't know him, you know. Like, and if you did know him, like it was, pretty, it was pretty hard to dislike him. Let's put it that way. Yeah, no, the Infosec certainly is a, you know, there is a lot of real interesting characters and it's sad when we lose them because there's so many, you know, there's so much uniqueness in, in some of the, the people who've done well in this scene or, or made a big impression. So, yeah, I I think I've only ever met him in passing, you know, as you say, at a, at a conference in the hallway or something. Uh, so I didn't really know the guy very well. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's always sad when we lose, you know, such influential people. Yeah, I mean, coming home from that dinner, I just, I just having that memory now. Uh, we're driving down the strip in Vegas, and we were talking about he'd been, and this is another thing about him. He was in a beef with teenagers, an online beef with teenagers. Like, <laughs> I'm like, why do you care? He's like, because they were coming after me, man. You know, like and he, he would just engage <laughs> in that stuff. But I think we're, you know, this is in the aftermath of his beef with Lizard Squad, where one of them had been arrested because they posted a geotagged photo of their girlfriend's boobs. Um, to Twitter or whatever. And so we're talking about that and he, like him and I, we actually got the giggles talking about how hard it was for him to stay on the run from the FBI for two years versus this guy just tweeting his GPS coordinates. And we were just absolutely <laughs> in hysterics and that's the way I'm going to choose to... Um, uh, choose to remember Kevin. Uh, vale, Kevin Mitnick. Anyway, Adam, that's actually it for the week's news. Thank you so much for joining me uh, and we'll do it all again next week. Cheers. Yeah, thanks very much, Pat. I will talk to you then. That was Adam Boileau there with a check of the week's security news. And a quick note before we get into this week's sponsor interview, if you are headed to Vegas uh, this year for Black Hat and DEF CON, well, Black Hat, uh, if you want to get a Risky Biz sticker, the team at Airlock Digital actually had some printed up and they're giving them out at their stand, uh, which is a very nice thing for them to do. Uh, so yeah, if you want one, you can get one there and uh, big thanks to them for doing that. And uh, they are repping Australia in force at Black Hat this year. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Travis McPeak from Resourcely. Resourcely is a company that will help you to generate Terraform for the major cloud services in a way that is not insane. You're going to hear in this interview how and why things can go wrong with cloud provisioning, but we started off by talking about how the relationship between security teams and developers has changed with the move to DevOps. Here's Travis. Yeah, so traditionally a security team in a waterfall model is this sign-off function. So it's like you have developers, they create something, and then at some point QA is going to pick it up. They're going to say, are there bugs, you know, fix things. And then at some point security is like the sign-off function. You know, is this release good to go from a security standpoint? Now, most companies have moved to a continuous delivery model, and it's all cloud and it's multiple deployments per day. So what does security do? And that's really a decision point. Um, some security teams have said, what we do is we are going to do a whole bunch of scanning and other kind of risk assessments. We'll do periodic threat modeling, but what we're going to do is a, is a DevOps process. We're going to integrate with developers and give them JIRA tickets where they're used to living. These JIRA tickets are going to have vulnerabilities. But the issue is this really creates an adversarial situation between developers and security. Developers are trying to get their job done. They're trying to ship code. Security's flinging a bunch of crap over the wall and saying like, oh, here's a bunch of JIRA tickets for you. 
developers, they don't have the context to know like whether these things are valuable. There's too much noise in here. And security is not really adding a lot of value aside from here's vulnerabilities that you might have. So, but, but hang security... on, isn't that just isn't that just situation normal, right? Because under the waterfall model, it's you know security is a roadblock, you know that you shall not pass until I'm satisfied that this is cool. And now it's like, okay, you're allowed to go through, but I'm just going to throw tickets at you all day. Like it's it's just a just a evolution of the adversarial relationship uh, based on exactly you know, what you're saying. Yeah, you've basically taken your big waterfall sign off and then made it to a bunch of little small waterfall sign offs which is not, the, in my opinion, the right way to go. What you want to do instead, the security team should really take this complex topic, which is what do we need to do to be secure within reason for the business to be compliant? Take that complex knowledge and break it down into specific actions that developers should take. So developers shouldn't need to know about cross-site scripting and all the different types of it, SQL injection, how those things work. What they should do is they should engage with some product that the security team has made for them that makes it like really hard to introduce these vulnerabilities or if there's some action that they need to take, it should be very specific without any kind of security knowledge that they need. Like, here's an issue. Here's why we think it's important to the business. And here's a specific action that we'd like you to take. I mean, one of the issues here, though, is that, um, you know, to really get to a wonderful place with this, you kind of need those unicorns who are security people who understand dev and dev people who understand security. And for a long time, you know, people have been trying to, um, uh, you know, people from both camps have been trying to develop skills from the other side, but you know, the success there is limited. I mean, there are people who do both, but they are unicorns and they charge accordingly. Right. Yeah. I mean, my opinion is maybe spicy, but security people that are working with developers in the product need to understand software engineering. There's not any room I mean, for this. I don't, think that's, I don't think that's a controversial opinion, but yeah. Well, it's not traditional security folks. Lots of people, you know, that don't have the empathy for what does a developer go through and what is their skill set. You know, this mm. is where like this ivory tower flicking stuff over the wall comes in. Well, I think that that perception of like, you know, the disdain from both sides where the security people think that the developers are idiots and the developers think that the security people are, you know, superior, you know, act We're superior. Right. Yeah, I think this comes from a lack of empathy from both sides. So if you're a security person and you've been a developer, you know what it is they go through, how much stuff they have on their plate, then you can break it down and you can say, what is the simple thing that I can get this person to do? How can I give them context that's in my head in a way that's simple and they understand what it is? It's not that they're idiots, it's that they're busy and they have all kinds of stuff on their plate that's not handling security stuff. Now, now, so much of the conversation about how to make these problems better has focused on stuff like, uh, you know, static analysis of code, right? So I know, I know some people who run AppSec programs who had a lot of success, like they came into places that it didn't really have AppSec programs and things were just a mess. Like I'm talking big companies with multiple development teams. And I think uh, what they did was smart. And I've, I've, I know of a few people who've done this, which is that they built developer infrastructure for the developers that had a lot of nice security stuff baked in, where, which would just sort of encourage the develop, like the developers just wanted to use it because it was better than the stuff that they built themselves. It always reminded me, I saw a TED talk like 10 years ago about uh, someone in Europe who built a foie gras farm where the geese, there were no fences, like the geese flocked to this place because they planted all of the right plants that the geese liked and they would just fly in uh, and, and get fat uh, eating all of this delicious, delicious vegetation, right? So a similar sort of approach. But I mean, your business is not so much about 
about the application code security, right? Like that's not really what it's about. This is about the next part of that, which is is has kind of been neglected a little bit in terms of it being an integrated thing, which is the sort of infrastructure side. Right. Yeah, and I think that that's a really powerful pattern. If you if your security team, you know, we all talk about how important partnership is, but like, what does that actually mean? If you're just flicking stuff over the wall and you're saying like, here's a bunch of risk, you go and handle it. Like here's every single JIRA ticket for all the vulnerabilities we have. You haven't added any value. Uh, what you want to do instead is say, Here, here's the business context I have. I understand that you're not going to fix everything. These are specific things based on what you're working on, our risk profile that we recommend. And by the way, here's a dead simple way to do it. I think the dead simpler, the better. So if you're getting a developer... They've already introduced some vulnerability, whether it's an AppSec vulnerability or an infrastructure vulnerability. It's going to be really expensive to go and fix it at that point. You have to go and make code changes. You need to test it out. You need to make sure that stuff isn't breaking. So this is where, you know, in the industry, we talk about shift left all of the time. Yeah. I think if the further you can shift it left, the better. But what's even better than that, if you don't want but to I, But I guess what I was getting at is we've been, <clears throat> excuse me, we've been really focused on shifting left when it comes to like the application code, not so much on the infrastructure side. That's right. Yeah, I think shifted left from the infrastructure side today means we're going to integrate into your CI process and tell you about a whole bunch of issues there. But a step further than that is, like you said, the foie gras farm. So we actually are going to lure developers to come and use something that's easier. It's like when you want your dog to take medicine. You don't just give the medicine to the dog. They're going to avoid it. You put it into the peanut butter, and then the dog wants the peanut butter, and they get the medicine. That's really the best way to go is developers don't even know that they're getting security. They're just like, oh, I need to do this infrastructure thing. It's complex. I can go through all of these steps if I want to, or I can use this nice, easy thing where security's in there, but I don't have to think about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it is It is a case of making something that's just, you know, makes provisioning easier, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the other interesting thing to me is who owns risk? So the traditional answer to that question is the security team owns the risk. This is why they're the sign-off, right? If you get a breach, who's, whose head's going to roll? By default, it's the CISO's head. So in a, in a farmed out model where really developers are responsible for their full application, then that shifts a little bit. Developers are actually responsible for security of their application, but we don't want to train every developer to be, be a security expert. They're not going to be able to get their job done. They're going to be so slowed down with training and all this other overhead that they can't get done what they need to get done. So the only sustainable way to approach this is to just make those things as much baked in as possible. This really is the same approach, I think, to a lot of the companies that have made the static analysis stuff, right? Like, and, and again, like those AppSec programs that I was talking about where, you know, if you want people to do the right thing, you just make doing the right thing a lot easier, you know, than doing the wrong thing. You just make it simpler. That's right. Yeah, I think the, my favorite work in this case is companies that have, instead of running some static analysis and it's like, here's a big pile of cross-site scripting, you just invest in some framework that may, makes cross-site scripting basically impossible. Well, I mean, yeah, but you're still going to need the static analysis stuff, right? For other stuff. The most powerful use of static analysis in that case is just detecting if people are using the right pattern or not. So it's like, oh, you can use this React framework and it bakes out all of the cross-site scripting just inherently in how it works. And then now your static analysis is, are you using this good pattern? And anytime it's not, it's not like go fix all of these things. It's like, here's some documentation on an easier way to do this. It's going to make your life a lot easier. Yeah, yeah. So look, you know, you're a, you're a new company, right? Like you are a startup. Where are you seeing interest uh, for this stuff? I'd imagine it's at places with, you know, large development teams and rapid, you know, uh, churn in terms of versioning and, you know, whatever. Versioning, do you even call it versioning in DevOps? I don't even know. You can call it whatever you want. DevOps is like one of these, uh, <laughs> DevOps is in your mind. 
Yes, that's right. But yeah, so who's interested in this, right? Because I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering where you would get the early adoption. Yeah. So here's a kind of a traditional arc. You have a small company and you have one poor security person that's responsible for a whole heap of stuff. What they'll do is they'll shore up the basics. You know, it's like, here's how we're going to do identity. Here's, you know, some kind of password management system, like things like that. And then at some point, you will you also have may, may have like the DevOps person and that poor DevOps person helps developers with all the infrastructure that they need. So we have one of these at our company. Uh, Preston is our, our poor DevOps soul and he can handle everything. Companies can get by with that until a certain point. And then at some point it's like, okay, that poor person is overwhelmed. So they either become a team or you start investing in patterns that make it so developers can kind of self-service this stuff. What a lot of companies will do at that point is they'll have Terraform modules. So cloud is like 90% the same for all organizations with 10% differences. The 10% differences make a module approach really hard. So basically companies will start building patterns for infrastructure and they put these into modules. And then those modules have opinions baked in. So it's like, this is how we do naming. The naming is baked into the module. What then ends up happening is you kind of get this explosion problem where it's like, oh, well, I need what's in that module, but I need like one little But difference. I need a little bit different. Yeah, yeah exactly. So you wind yeah. up with another module. Yeah, yeah. yeah now yeah. we have two no, modules can... and I have to move totally the ones see. over. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And before you know it, you've got 6,000 of them, right? Exactly, right. And I've talked to people that are so frustrated with this approach. They're like, should we even do Terraform anymore? Maybe we just go back to ClickOps and just rely on scanning to go and tell us when we have problems. Yeah, no, that doesn't sound like a good option either. Well, and I guess this is this is how Resourcely was made, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so we want to solve those problems with modules. What we want to do, like more than that, though, is think about what it takes to get to that point. So you have to hire enough cloud expertise that they understand, like what are the common patterns, what kind of guardrails should we even have in there, like what are the things that we care about and want to enforce. It doesn't make sense for every single company to have to have that. And then they're reinventing the same cloud patterns with small differences that other companies have. So yeah, that's, that's why Resourcely is made. We just don't think that every company should have to re-implement basically the exact same wheel with tiny little differences in there. All right, Travis McPeak, thanks a lot for joining us uh, to talk about all of that really interesting stuff. And we'll uh, chat to you again soon. Thank you. That was Travis McPeak from Resourcely there. Big thanks to him for that. And uh, yeah, apparently a bunch of you out there really dig Resourcely because Travis had a, uh, a huge response from his previous appearance in one of our Snake Oilers shows. Uh, so if you want some more information, you can find them at resourcely.io. So that's R-E-S-O-U-R-C-E-L-Y.io. And that is it for this week's show. I do hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back tomorrow with another edition of the Seriously Risky Business podcast in the Risky Business News RSS feed. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. 